This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. COVID-19 Vaccine Updates. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In 2020, when COVID-19 hit, scientists around the world focused their efforts on the pandemic. And in record time, a COVID-19 vaccine was developed with several more soon to follow. The first case of COVID-19 was detected on December 1st, 2019 in Wuhan, China. And a year later, on December 2nd, 2020, the United Kingdom's Medicine and Health Products Regulatory Agency became the first in the world to approve the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. But let's go back in time a bit. In 1984, a group of scientists at Harvard University synthesized biologically active messenger RNA or mRNA in a lab in order to study gene function and activity. A few years later, another scientist mixes mRNA with human fat cells. What he discovered is that human cells could absorb the mRNA and make proteins with it, an early finding in the mRNA vaccine development system. But by the 1990s, researchers were testing mRNA technology for both influenza and cancer vaccine development. However, there were significant limi limitations in this work because mRNA is very fragile and expensive to produce. But in 2005, doctors Carrico and Wiseman from UPenn discovered a way to modify mRNA that minimizes immune response from attacking it, making it both more stable and more effective as a vaccine delivery system, paving the way for the development of mRNA-based vaccines against COVID-19. Of course, our knowledge of COVID-19 continues to evolve just as the virus continues to mutate. Just last month on April 19, 2023, the CDC and FDA changed their guidance on COVID-19 vaccines. 
And to update us on the latest COVID-19 vaccine data and guidance, I've invited two experts. Emily Vrantos is a doctor of pharmacy at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and serves as the lead specialty pharmacist for the Department of Family and Community Medicine. I also have Dr. Matthew Washam, an assistant professor of pediatrics at Ohio State, who practices as a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Nationwide Children's Hospital and is also the chief of epidemiology and infection prevention there. Emily, Matt, welcome to MedNet. Thanks, Jean. Thank you for having us. Well, thank you for being here. Emily, I'm gonna cut to the chase a little bit, but do you still recommend the COVID-19 vaccine to your patients given all the changes both with the pandemic ending and the changes with the vaccine? I do. I think that given the public health emergency ending, we still continue to see cases of COVID in our offices. And so I do think for patients who have not received a bivalent booster dose, they should receive one, especially those who are older than 65 or immunocompromised. Perfect. And Matt, um, are there any more changes that we can expect on the horizon for vaccines? Likely, yes. Uh, It it sounds as though the FDA is going to reconvene sometime over the summer to rediscuss formulations for perhaps an annual booster dose or a a change in the schedule to mimic the flu vaccine where it's a a once yearly dose uh, in the fall. Uh, More information to come. All right, perfect. Thanks. And before we get started with today's talk, I wanted to let you know about our podcast. You can listen to the audio-only version of our programs via podcast. Just search for MedNet 21 CME on your preferred app. Our webcasts are all available on our website at go.osu.edu slash MedNet 21. Also, if you have any questions about any of our programs or if you have a suggestion, please send those to us by clicking the Ask a Question icon on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Emily? Thank you. Neither Matt nor I have any disclosures today. Our presentation will review the data supporting COVID-19 vaccination in children and adults, provide an overview of the current CDC recommendations for COVID-19 vaccination, which are current as of today, May 5th, 2023, and discuss frequently encountered questions surrounding COVID-19 vaccination. So before we go through the recommendations, I'd like to first review the types of vaccines we have available. The first vaccine is an mRNA vaccine, and there are currently two vaccine manufacturers, Moderna and Pfizer. With the removal of the monovalent vaccine in this category, we go from 11 products down to five products, and this is hopefully good for simplifying the vaccine regimen, but also for preventing possible dosing errors. mRNA vaccines are a lipid-encapsulated mRNA encoding spike protein, which teaches the body to produce the spike protein and generate an immune response. Following the protein production, the body degrades the vaccine mRNA, and this does not in any way interact with the recipient's DNA. The second type of vaccine we have available is the protein subunit. The one vaccine product available for this is Novavax, which is approved for patients 12 years and older. It contains a synthetic nanoparticle coated with a spike protein, and the body generates an immune response to this protein. Similar to the mRNA vaccines and the viral vector vaccines, it does not contain live virus. The third type of vaccine we have available is a viral vector. This is manufactured by Janssen, but better known as the J&J vaccine. It's an adenoviral vector containing gene to encode the spike protein. The thing to note about this vaccine is all currently current doses of this expire on May 6, 2023, so tomorrow. And so following that, the current formulation will not be approved for use um, based based on the strains that it's currently covering. 
So before we go through the recommendations, I'd like to review the effectiveness and safety data for adults 18 and older. The Vision Network is a multi-state network of electronic health records. The CDC reviewed data from the Vision Network between September of 2022 and March of 2023. They used a test-negative design to look at patients who had a positive PCR with a COVID-like illness and a negative PCR with a COVID-like illness. The first slide here demonstrates the absolute vaccine efficacy against emergency department and urgent care encounters in immunocompetent adults ages 18 to 64. All of the data that was reviewed from the Vision Network was adjusted for age, race, ethnicity, geographic region, calendar time, and local circulating COVID rates. You can see here that in those aged 18 to 64 who were immunocompetent and only received monovalent doses, the vaccine effectiveness was fairly low at around 4%. The time from this monovalent dose was around one year. When you look at the efficacy of the bivalent doses, you can see that there was greater efficacy closer to their vaccination date. So those who received a bivalent booster had around a 53% vaccine efficacy in between the seven and 59 days compared to 42% from 60 to 119 days. And then vaccine efficacy decreased as we went further out from time of vaccination to about 15% in those between 120 to 179 days. Similarly, when we look at the same um, data of emergency department and urgent care encounters in immunocompetent adults, this was in ages 65 and older. You can see that those who received a monovalent dose actually had greater efficacy than the younger age group, and the bivalent boosters, again, provided additional protection. So the bivalent booster, closer between 7 and 59 days, showed about a 61% efficacy against emergency department and urgent care visits, 47% between 60 and 119 days, and around 25% between 120 and 179 days. What you can see based on this data, as time goes, from, time goes on from the date of vaccination, the vaccine efficacy does wane. When we look at the data on vaccine efficacy against hospitalizations, we first look at those who are immunocompetent adults between the ages of 18 and 64. You can see here that the monovalent dose actually did show better protection than when we look at the emergency department and urgent care visits at around 21% effective at preventing hospitalizations in these immunocompetent adults. We also see that the bivalent booster did increase efficacy and then between 170, 120 and 179 days, there was actually not enough data to support um, and analyze this, this information. When we look at the older patients against hospitalization, so those older than 65 years of age in immunocompetent, we can see that again, the vaccine efficacy for monovalent actually was still greater than it was for those compared to the ER visits and urgent care visits at around 25%. The vaccine booster doses did produce a greater efficacy, um, but did again show that waning over time as time from vaccination progressed. So we know that that worked well for immunocompetent adults, but what about the immunocompromised group? So this data was looking at patients who were immunocompromised who were 18 and older against hospitalizations. You can see that those who received a monovalent vaccine only did show limited protection against hospitalizations, where those who received a booster dose did show greater protection. One thing to note here is that the efficacy of the booster doses was less than we saw in immunocompetent patients. So we know that 
that's partially a reason why there is that recommendation for getting another booster if you're immunocompromised. The vaccine data and efficacy here did not show the same trend pattern of waning over time. As you can see, the earlier dates, as well as the 120 to 179 day date, actually showed a similar efficacy with the greatest protection being shown between 60 and 119 days. A second set of data that was looked at was from the IV network between September of 2002 and April of 2023. The IV network is a multi-state vaccine efficacy platform from 25 hospitals across 20 states. It also used a prospective test negative design to look at hospitalizations among immunocompetent adults older than 65 years old. You can see here that the monovalent dose did show the lowest efficacy at preventing these hospitalizations, and the booster dose again provided a greater efficacy with 65% around the 7 to 59 day mark, 43% 60 to 119 days, and then a decreased efficacy to 22% around 120 to 179 days. This again demonstrates, similar to the vision network data, that there is a waning of the vaccine efficacy over time. So in summary for adults, we know that vaccine efficacy does wane over time. However, the bivalent boosters do provide additional protection against emergency department, urgent care visits, and hospitalizations. What we also know from previous data is that vaccines provide durable protection against severe disease, including mechanical ventilation and death. So we know that they work, but how safe are they? The CDC reviewed data from multiple sources, including the Vaccine Safety Data Link, VAERS, CMS data, and the Department of Veteran Affairs. What they looked at were any safety signals that showed any adverse effects for any of the vaccines. There was one safety signal indicated for ischemic stroke in the Pfizer bivalent booster in those older than 65. The safety signal started in November of 2022 and continued through January of 2023, but has not been seen in the past 10 weeks. This timeframe did correspond with patients also getting high dose or adjuvanted flu vaccines. So they're not clear if there was some um, correlation between those two. And so they're still looking into that to determine any possible sign. What we know is there was no other safety signals for any adverse effects for any of the bivalent boosters or any combination of different types of vaccines. So what are the recommendations for adults? For those who have not received a bivalent booster, the recommendation is to receive one dose of a bivalent mRNA COVID vaccine, regardless of the completion of a monovalent or primary series. For those who are 65 and older, one optional additional bivalent mRNA vaccine dose should be received at least four months after the last bivalent booster. The special group we have is the immunocompromised, where they may receive an optional additional bivalent mRNA dose at least two months after the last bivalent dose. They may also receive additional bivalent mRNA doses at their healthcare provider's recommendation. So a conversation does need to be made with the healthcare provider to determine if this is appropriate. And if so, those doses need to be spaced at least two months apart. When we look at the data, this is where that vaccine waning over time, it does show that the additional support we receive from the boosters, especially in the immunocompromised, is most important um, if they can get those as, as close together around at least two months as possible. 
So if someone is unable or unwilling to receive a Pfizer or Moderna bivalent mRNA booster, they are able to receive a Novavax booster. The requirements for that, they have to be 18 or older, have completed a primary series at least six months ago, and have not received any other booster dose. So some common questions we get regarding COVID vaccines in adults age 18 and older. Can the COVID vaccine be mixed? Yes, so it can be mixed under certain situations when the same vaccine product is not available, if the previous dose was given but the product is unknown, if the person would otherwise not complete the series or they're unable to complete the series due to a contraindication. So when we look at if a patient received a Moderna primary series and they want to receive a bivalent booster, if the Moderna vaccine is not available, they could receive a Pfizer vaccine mRNA booster and that would be fine. Will an annual vaccine be needed? Similar to what Matt said earlier, possibly. In June, the FDA will be meeting to hold um, a discussion about the composition of a potential COVID vaccine for the fall of 2023. They do this already yearly with the influenza vaccines. And so ACIP will look at what variants and lineages are most likely to circulate in the upcoming year and then determine um, what strains will be in the vaccine and then discuss with manufacturers how they will update the formulations of a vaccine um, to have available in the fall. And then when will vaccines be commercialized? So currently the government is purchasing all COVID vaccinations, but this likely will be changing in the fall to where pharmacies, hospital systems, physicians offices will need to be purchasing the vaccines from the manufacturer. Again, this is likely going to occur in the fall. However, that has not been 100% decided yet. It will all depend on the June meeting by the FDA and what recommendations the CDC have on potential strain changes and variants that might be in the fall vaccine. After commercializations, vaccines will remain free for most people through the Vaccines for Children program, Children's Health Insurance program, and then Medicaid and Medicare. And then similar, most commercial insurances do provide vaccine coverage, and so it's likely going to be similar to the coverage for other vaccinations. So I'm going to pass it over to Matt to discuss pediatrics. All right, thank you, Emily, for that uh, wonderful background of uh, safety and effectiveness data for adults. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to discuss uh, COVID-19 vaccine updates in pediatrics as well. Uh, so I'll, I'll first uh, start off with vaccine effectiveness and safety data presented for children six months through 17 years of age, uh, stratified across several different age groups. Uh, first, I'll begin with vaccine effectiveness data for children six months to 23 months of age. Uh, most of these data come from a subset of data evaluated by the FDA for Pfizer and Moderna clinical vaccine trials. Uh, both of these uh, clinical trials included randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled clinical trials enrolling immunocompetent infants and young children. Uh, the analysis period uh, uh, for these data are December 2021 through April 2022, uh, which is important because it includes uh, both early Omicron, specifically for Moderna, uh, as well as the BA2 Omicron subvariant, uh, specifically for Pfizer as well. Uh, these data reflect the vaccine effectiveness for monovalent vaccines, so not bivalent vaccines, uh, and reflect uh, effectiveness against mild symptomatic infection. Uh, first, they analyzed the neutralizing antibody levels uh, following administration of the vaccine. Uh, and contrasted them against neutralizing antibody levels in a population in which uh, vaccine effectiveness has already been clinically demonstrated uh, in adults and young, uh, uh, and adolescents and young adults, excuse me. 
the Moderna geometric mean ratio, which is uh, contrasting the levels of antibody levels of children six months to 23 months of age compared to those of adolescents and young adults, uh, demonstrated a GMR of 1.28, uh, reflecting that these levels were again comparable. Uh, the Pfizer GMR was 1.19, uh, again with a confidence interval uh, uh, not uh, crossing over one, uh, indicating that they are comparable levels and are non-inferior. Uh, for clinical vaccine effectiveness, uh, these data were similar to older children. Uh, Moderna vaccine effectiveness uh, was 51 percent. Pfizer vaccine effectiveness was 76 percent in this age group. Uh, both of these had quite wide confidence intervals due to the relatively low number of cases uh, in this subset of data, uh, which did uh, make it more challenging to interpret uh, the exact vaccine effectiveness data. Uh, for older children three years to five years of age, uh, most recent data come from the Increasing Community Access to Testing Program, or ICAT program, uh, which is a test-negative, case-controlled analysis to estimate vaccine effectiveness against symptomatic mild disease in immunocompetent children ages three to five. Uh, this analysis period was a little bit later, so J July 2022 through April 2023, uh, and included uh, Omicron subvariants BA4, BA5, uh, as well as XBB uh, were the predominant subvariants circulating during these time periods. Uh, these data reflect vaccine effectiveness from the monovalent vaccine as well, uh, and specifically mRNA vaccines. Uh, uh, data demonstrated here are, are uh, stratified by both Moderna and Pfizer, as well as partial series versus complete series, and then time since completion. Uh, so working from the top, the uh, vaccine effectiveness for a partial series of Moderna uh, was 40% with a confidence interval ranging from 25 to 52%. Uh, an increase in vaccine effectiveness was seen following completion of the Moderna uh, vaccine series within two to three months of completion, uh, where the VE increased to 54% uh, with confidence intervals ranging 41 to 65%. Uh, similar to the adult data, the vaccine effectiveness did wane uh, over time uh, with completion of the vaccine series uh, greater than three months, so between four to six months, uh, decreasing the vaccine effectiveness down to 18 percent uh, with confidence intervals uh, crossing zero percent. Uh, similar data were seen for Pfizer, uh, so a, a partial series inclusive of just a single dose uh, showed a vaccine effectiveness of 20 percent in children three to five years of age which then increased to 40% vaccine effectiveness following a partial series with two doses, uh, and then a complete vaccine series uh, demonstrating a uh, accumulated 27% vaccine effectiveness up to six months following completion. Uh, these data are slightly different than the way the Moderna data are presented and combine both, both the near term, so within two to three months, as well as the longer term, four to six months, uh, giving an aggregate vaccine effectiveness, uh, which uh, did impact these data points. Uh, for vaccine effectiveness of older children, five years to 15 years of age, most recent data come from the Pediatric Research Observing Trends and Exposures in COVID-19 Timelines, uh, or the PROTECT cohort. Uh, this cohort is, was conducted in Arizona, Florida, Texas, and Utah. Uh, and reflected a prospective cohort of, again, immunocompetent children uh, and adolescents aged 5 to 15 years of age. 
Uh, this uh, cohort was a little bit different. It included routine weekly SARS-CoV-2 testing irrespective of symptoms. Uh, and the analysis period was December 2021 uh, through February 2022. Uh, that included the early uh, Omicron variant transmission time period. Uh, these data reflect the monovalent Pfizer vaccine effectiveness against both mild symptomatic infection and because of that weekly screening also included vaccine effectiveness uh, estimates for asymptomatic infection as well. Uh, these data uh, stratified by age show the Pfizer data for children 5 to 11 years of age uh, in which the last dose was up to three months prior uh, a vaccine effectiveness of 31% uh, with confidence intervals ranging from 9 to 48%. Uh, for older uh, uh, children and adolescents aged 12 to 15, uh, with a last dose up to five months prior, vaccine effectiveness of uh, 59%, uh, which then uh, uh, changed to a vaccine effectiveness of 62% uh, greater than five months prior. Uh, what, what's of note in this slide is that the confidence interval for greater than five months in that older cohort uh, is that a very wide confidence interval uh, ranging from negative 28% to 89%, making this an in imprecise estimate due to the small number of cases. Uh, the data previously presented were against either asymptomatic uh, infection or mild symptomatic disease. Uh, but what about severe disease in, in, in children? Uh, data from the Overcoming COVID-19 Network, uh, which is a test-negative case-controlled analysis to estimate vaccine effectiveness against more severe outcomes of COVID-19, including hospitalization and multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC, uh, in aminocompetent children ages 5 to 18 years of age. Uh, this analysis period was uh, from July 2021 through April 2022, uh, which reflected data from the Delta, Omicron, and then the early Omicron subvariant tra transmission period. Uh, these data reflect vaccine effectiveness from the monovalent Pfizer vaccine. Uh, the data uh, presented here in terms of uh, protection against severe disease uh, for hospitalization in children five years to 11 years of age, uh, demonstrating 68% vaccine effectiveness, so higher than uh, previous vaccine effectiveness uh, estimates for mild infection, uh, with a relatively narrow confidence interval from 48 to 81%. Uh, similar data in children ages 12 to 18 years of age, uh, for vaccine effectiveness estimates against hospitalization of 51%, ranging from 31 to 65% confidence interval. Uh, for uh, data against MISC for younger children, five years to 11 years of age, uh, effectiveness uh, data of 78%, ranging from 48 to 90%. Uh, and then similar data, again, sh uh, shown for older children and adolescents 12 to 18 years of age, uh, demonstrating a vaccine effectiveness against MISC of 90% uh, with a range of 81 to 95% confidence interval. Uh, not displayed here though is, is that a uh, subset of these data uh, stratified by age since, or, or excuse me, time since vaccination uh, did not show a drop off uh, of protection indicating a more durable uh, protection against severe disease uh, than what was previously display, displayed against uh, more mild infection. Uh, in terms of vaccine safety data for children six months to five years of age, uh, uh, not uh, surprising to, to all of us that mild and moderate local and systemic reactions are common. Uh, approximately 25% have an injection site reaction uh, reported, 
uh, approximately 50% will have any systemic reaction uh, that can include uh, irritability and, and low-grade fevers. Uh, thankfully, serious adverse events are very rare in this age group. Uh, specifically about myocarditis, no reports of myocarditis for data analyzed by CDC through August of 2022 are reported, uh, which does reflect data from approximately 1 million vaccinated young children. Uh, in terms of data submitted to VAERS, vaccination errors are the most common adverse event reported uh, to this reporting system. Uh, for older children of 5 years to 11 years of age, uh, specifically reflecting data, uh, vaccine safety data for the bivalent booster, uh, again similar to the uh, earlier data is that mild and moderate local and systemic reactions are common. 70% uh, have any injection site reaction and about 50%, so about the same proportion, uh, will have any systemic reaction as well. Uh, again, serious adverse events are, are very rare in this age group. Uh, no reports of myocarditis for data analyzed by CDC through January 2023. Uh, and again, this reflects data from approximately 1 million bivalent booster doses. Uh, similar data reported to VAERS indicate that vaccination errors are the most common event reported. Uh, for older children, 12 years to 17 years of age, again, data uh, reflecting uh, safety from the bivalent booster, uh, a very similar reaction profile for local and systemic reactions, 70% uh, having any injection site reaction, about 60% having systemic reaction, uh, very similar in terms of uh, uh, very rare to have a serious adverse event identified. Uh, in this uh, age group, as the uh, risk of myocarditis and pericarditis uh, does increase in the adolescents and young adults, specifically for males. Uh, five cases of myocarditis uh, for the data analyzed through October 2022 uh, by CDC. Uh, of note, not all of these cases occurred in children 12 to 17 years of age. The age range reported was 12 years, all the way up to 78 years of age for these five cases. Uh, these uh, data reflect uh, approximately 22 million bivalent booster doses, uh, so approximately one case uh, per four to five million bivalent booster doses uh, administered. Uh, similar to earlier data, uh, vaccination errors are the most common event reported to VAERS. Uh, so in summary for vaccination data of effectiveness and, and safety in children, uh, completing the vaccine series provides protection against both mild and severe COVID-19 infection in children, similar to adults. The durability of protection does wane over about four to six months following the last dose. Uh, with initial protection and waning patterns very similar to what we've seen and what uh, Emily presented uh, uh, from the latest data in adults. Uh, thankfully, the protection against more severe disease outcomes, including hospitalization and MISC, uh, is more durable, indicating a more prolonged duration of protection against these more uh, serious uh, outcomes of COVID-19. Uh, thankfully, serious adverse events from the vaccine are quite rare in children. Uh, moving through the updated uh, vaccine recommendations for children six months through 17 years of age recently uh, uh, released by FDA and CDC in the past uh, several weeks. Uh, displayed here is a graphical representation of a table displayed uh, at the CDC website for the vaccine schedule uh, for children six months to four years of age. So it's a little bit more complex uh, than the, the adult uh, vaccine recommendations at this time. Uh, and differ in terms of recommended vaccine doses uh, by product, uh, uh, meaning Moderna versus Pfizer, as well as previous COVID-19 vaccination status. 
to quickly summarize for Moderna, the updated recommendations are that children six months to four years of age should have at least two doses of vaccine, one of which uh, has to be the updated bivalent vaccine dose. Uh, the timing in between doses does vary, uh, so I, I would uh, uh, encourage uh, those listening to reference the CDC table for specifics. Uh, in terms of uh, the uh, dosing and vial uh, differences uh, displayed here is that most of the doses in this age group will be the dark blue topped vial, the Moderna 0.25 ml or the 25 microgram dose, uh, but notably the dark pink vial uh, is recommended for those children six months to four years of age uh, who have received two previous monovalent uh, Moderna vaccine doses. Uh, rather than the dark blue cap. So just a, uh, a note to follow the dosing uh, recommendations quite carefully uh, because it can be confusing of which dose is the appropriate dose to administer in this age group. Uh, for the Pfizer vaccine recommendation, slightly different than Moderna, uh, but in short, a, a overall summary is that at least three doses are recommended uh, with at least, at least one of those doses being the updated bivalent vaccine. Uh, the uh, uh, maroon cap uh, is the recommended vial for this age group. Uh, and again, the, uh, the dosing recommendations do vary based on previous COVID-19 vaccination uh, prior to April 2023 when these uh, guidance documents were updated. Uh, for children specifically five years of age, uh, it's slightly different than those that are six months to, to uh, four years of age. Uh, again, quite, quite similar in terms of Moderna recommendations. Uh, a couple quick uh, points to highlight here is that uh, children five years of age can receive the Pfizer vaccine. It's a, it's a different dose. It's the orange cap vial rather than the maroon cap vial uh, for children that were previously vaccinated against Moderna. Uh, so giving two different options in terms of which uh, uh, vaccine these children can receive uh, that does increase the flexibility for clinics. Uh, for uh, Pfizer recommendations uh, for children five years of age, very similar to older children and adults uh, in which a single dose of a bivalent vaccine uh, will uh, make these children up to date uh, on their COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, in terms of the uh, vaccine schedule for children uh, six years of age and older, uh, this vaccine schedule follows the adult schedule and simplifies uh, administration uh, recommendations significantly. Uh, for immunocompromised children, similar to immunocompromised adults, uh, these children can receive an, uh, an additional optional bivalent MRA, mRNA dose at least two months after the last bivalent dose uh, with additional bivalent mRNA doses administered spaced at least two months apart per healthcare provider discretion. Uh, this recommendation is really based on the uh, individual circumstances of the, the child uh, and can include uh, higher risk uh, children, including those recipients of stem cell transplants, CAR-T therapy, B-cell depletion, or, or other similar uh, very high risk conditions uh, that may uh, uh, make it uh, uh, reasonable and, and recommended to administer additional uh, booster doses. Uh, of note, these recent updates do not change for Novavax uh, and the two dose primary vaccine series separated by three to eight weeks uh, continues to be recommended for children ages 12 years of age and older. Uh, those uh, recipients of Novavax vaccine can receive a bivalent mRNA dose uh, booster at least two months following completion of the primary vaccine series. Uh, in, in terms of common questions regarding COVID-19 vaccines in children, we continue to receive 
uh, questions coming in from providers in, in the community. Uh, one more kind of operational question is, which dose should a child receive who turns five years old in between doses? Uh, so a, 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 a practical rephrasing of this is a, a child who starts the vaccine likely uh, in, in the last several months of uh, their fourth year of age and then returns back to office and has celebrated their, their fifth birthday. Uh, so in general for vaccines, patients should receive an age-appropriate product and dosage based on the their age and the day of the vaccination. The exception to this though is the Pfizer primary series for children. Uh, so children younger than five years of age who start the three-dose series of Pfizer vaccine must then complete the three-dose series at which they start. Uh, phrased another way, children must receive the 0.2 milliliter or three microgram maroon cap dose rather than the 0.2 milliliter 10 microgram orange cap dose uh, that they would get if they showed up to your office unvaccinated at five years of age. Uh, another question that, that we receive, and it's now becoming more specific for the Novavax uh, vaccine rather than the mRNA vaccines, is really when is the optimal time to administer the second dose uh, of Novavax vaccine in an adolescent male uh, or a, a young adult male at uh, specifically higher risk of myocarditis and pericarditis? Uh, again, the updated CDC and FDA recommendations have, have narrowed this uh, question considerably from all uh, vaccines, including Pfizer and Moderna, to really just making this more relevant for the Novavax vaccine. Uh, so the second dose of a Novavax vaccine can be administered as soon as three weeks following the first dose. Uh, however, while the risk does remain small, cases of myocarditis and pericarditis have been reported post-authorization uh, uh, following the post-authorization use outside of the United States. Uh, so in uh, individuals that are at uh, higher risk of myocarditis uh, following COVID-19 vaccination, extending the interval out to eight weeks may reduce the rare risk of vaccine-associated myocarditis and pericarditis, uh, again, particularly in males ages 12 to 39 years of age. Uh, data have not demonstrated a reduction of risk beyond this time period uh, so I, I would not wait uh, longer than eight weeks uh, if you can. Uh, and then the, the last question I'll go over is should children who received, uh, or should I, uh, I should say recovered from MISC undergo vaccination? Uh, in general, this is a very individualized uh, response and uh, individual vaccination decisions should be made in consultation uh, with a multidisciplinary medical team. Uh, in general, though, the uh, benefit of vaccine does outweigh the theoretical risks of an MIS-like illness in the following uh, individuals, in the following children. Uh, those that have had clinical recovery uh, that has been achieved, including return to baseline cardiac function, uh, as well as at least 90 days has passed since their diagnosis of MISC. Uh, again, the, uh, uh, these decisions should be made with the multidisciplinary team input. Uh, so to summarize the, the data presented here, kind of a whirlwind of, of summary data, uh, is that vaccination uh, against COVID-19 remains effective in preventing infection and disease due to SARS-CoV-2, uh, both mild disease and severe disease. Uh, we've seen that effectiveness does wane over time, uh, though is most durable for severe disease, indicating a uh, more sustained protection against hospitalization and more severe outcomes. Uh, serious adverse events from vaccination are rare in children and adults. Uh, remaining up to date with a, a bivalent vaccine is the uh, most important way and the 
uh, to ensure ongoing protection against uh, uh, severe outcomes from COVID-19. Uh, and, and with all things in the COVID-19 pandemic, vaccination guidance can change. Uh, so I'd encourage those listening in, uh, especially at a future date, to refer to the CDC and FDA for the latest guidance and recommendations in terms of vaccines. Uh, with that, I, I thank you for the opportunity to discuss these data uh, and the opportunity to present today. Thank you guys so much. That was wonderful. Um, that was a lot of information you went through with the data and with the new guidelines. So I really appreciate you coming here just in time for the newest updates. And hopefully this will help a lot of people before the next update comes through and we find out about whether or not we're going to have a yearly vaccine. Well, Matt, um, you know, first of all, I would say I'm, I am really excited that the CDC has kind of simplified things and now we're using fewer products. Um, but, you know, it, from your data, it seems like the vaccine uh, immunity really wanes um, quite a lot quicker than uh, I guess I would hope for kind of within six months. So if that's the case, why aren't we seeing more outbreaks? I, I think that's a very good question and, and, and relates to the multitude of factors that are involved in, in SARS-CoV-2 transmission. Uh, so over the course of the pandemic, multiple years now, uh, between vaccine-mediated immunity in the population and natural immunity in the population, uh, we have, uh, uh, contrasting against uh, 2020 and 2021, far fewer uh, pockets within the population uh, who remain largely susceptible uh, to uh, both mild and severe disease. Uh, and, and so as the transmission dynamics play out uh, year to year, uh, I, I think we'll see, uh, again, changes in the year to come uh, or years to come, uh, but it, 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 it reflects a much higher degree of uh, immunity, collective immunity in the population uh, that's making these large outbreaks that we saw in early 2020, thankfully uncommon at this time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, speaking of the yearly vaccine that you've both kind of alluded to as being a possibility, um, if the immunity wanes in six months, why would this vaccine be more yearly? Are we starting to see more seasonal variation? Looking back over the last uh, two years, or, or really since, uh, I'll say since the uh, Omicron variant emerged, uh, certainly there, there does seem to be a pattern establishing where uh, during the, uh, the, the winter respiratory viral season, when we see a recurrence of flu, RSV, and other respiratory viruses, a, a uh, increase in transmission during that time. Uh, what we're also seeing, though, it, it's not just at that time, uh, there there mm -hmm. have been uh, uh, increases in, in cases related to subvariant transmission uh, occurring uh, interseasonally uh, compared to the winter respiratory viruses. So I, I think that pattern will continue to evolve and emerge over time. Uh, but but it, it uh, uh, does seem to be that that winter respiratory season will likely remain a, a risk factor for sustained transmission, similar to other respiratory viruses. Okay. So are, are they, um, you know, the vaccine development, are they also looking at additional variants to include in the vaccine? Is that something that has been discussed at all? The, the, they are, and, and uh, again, uh, the, the pattern I think will be established over the next couple, couple years, but uh, tentatively FDA is uh, planning to meet in the summer uh, to rediscuss what the uh, updated bivalent doses should be in the fall uh, to discuss whether or not the uh, uh, vaccine schedule should be adjusted or the vaccine uh, production should be adjust adjusted, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, in order to, to almost mirror that of a, a seasonal flu vaccine. Okay. Uh, I, I think we'll find out a lot more in the next six months, but it, it seems to be working that way. Okay. 
Perfect. And Emily, does the COVID vaccine, does that how does that compare with other vaccines in terms of efficacy? Is it similarly as effective or not really? Yeah, so I think when we're comparing different vaccine effectiveness, we have to look at what kind of outcomes we're measuring. So mm -hmm. for COVID vaccine, we're really looking at hospitalization, severe disease, and death. So when you compare it to other vaccines, a vaccine such as polio, for example, if you take according to schedules, around 99% effective at mm -hmm. preventing polio. What we're trying to do with the COVID vaccine is similar to what we see with flu vaccine. We know that the flu vaccine annually is about 40 to 60% effective at preventing hospitalization, severe disease, and death from flu. Uh -huh. And so that's a similar pattern to what we're seeing with the COVID vaccine. We are seeing that increased efficacy with the bivalent booster compared to the monovalent, which is why the recommendation for that bivalent booster dose is needed. Okay, so just to clarify, for adults, no matter if they've had uh, monovalent vaccines before or if they've had no vaccinations before, now the only vaccine they need is one dose of either bivalent mRNA vaccine. Um, is that correct? That's correct. So if you have not received any doses of a previous COVID vaccination, you need one bivalent dose if, bivalent dose if you are a immunocompetent adult. Um, if you have received a previous monovalent series but no bivalent doses, you would need that one additional bivalent dose. If mm -hmm. you have received a bivalent dose already and you are immunocompetent between the ages of 18 and 65, you would be considered up to date on your vaccination. Okay, and is there any difference in the dosing of the bivalent compared to what it is as a booster compared to if you were getting it for the very first time, you've never had any COVID vaccines before? No, the dose is gonna be the same regardless if you've had a COVID vaccination prior or not. Perfect. So for adults, it's pretty simple. It is. Just the one bivalent dose for pretty much um, any comer who hasn't had the bivalent yet, and then the optional second dose for 65 and above or immunocompromised. Is that correct? Correct. And just clarifying that those 65 and older need to wait at least four months after their last dose, but mm -hmm. the immunocompromised is two months. Perfect. Awesome. Now, Matt, um, do you have any information on the vaccine protection and how it how it compares to natural immunity? Uh, both vaccine-mediated uh, uh, immunity and uh, in, uh, immunity derived following natural infection, uh, both do provide protection against mild infection and severe infection uh, subsequently. But, but similar to vaccine-mediated immunity, uh, protection against uh, uh, future disease following natural infection does wane over time. Mm -hmm. uh, so previous studies have demonstrated a, a benefit of vaccination really independent of prior infectious status uh, because it does uh, uh, prolong that more durable protection even if you've had COVID-19 in the past. So are you saying that it's still recommended to get the vaccine despite having had the infection because you will get additional benefit? Yes, uh, okay. it, it, those that uh, uh, if, if you're fortunate at this point not to have had COVID-19 mm -hmm. should certainly get vaccinated if you've had COVID-19, it's still recommended to remain up to date. Okay, perfect. Is there a waiting period between when you've had COVID and when you should get the vaccine? There, if you're otherwise eligible based on the time periods and time intervals in between doses, there, there is no uh, uh, waiting period uh, required between recovery from infection beyond just staying at home and isolating until you've recovered uh, to getting that additional dose. Uh, it, it's not unreasonable, though, to perhaps wait a period of time knowing that following natural uh, infection and the natural immunity does provide protection over two to three months period is if you're at lower risk of severe disease 
that you could wait several months uh, following recovery to get vaccinated. If, if you're at higher risk of severe disease, that's probably a more individualized discussion with your provider uh, and, and depends on the circumstances of, of your immune system. Okay, perfect. And then, um, Emily, how about side effects? How do the side effects of the COVID-19 vaccine compare with side effects you'd get from other vaccines? So we know that with every vaccine, just like with every medication, there's a potential for a side effect. Both in adults and children, the most common side effects with any vaccine, including the COVID vaccine, is an injection site reaction, some pain on injection site. One thing we do see a little bit higher is that systemic reaction. So people having a low-grade fever, some muscle aches, some body aches. That is common with the COVID vaccine compared to others, but usually not self-limiting. Um, so I would say it's a, it's a little bit more potential for that. But otherwise, I would say injection site, redness, pain are the most common. Okay. Now, I think both of you have mentioned that one of the most reported side effect, or maybe not side effect is vaccine errors. So vaccine errors, um, you know, and one, it's wonderful that they've simplified and there's fewer products to get mixed up, but um, that is a very common problem, vaccine errors. So what are some of the common vaccine errors that we might see? And Emily, you can say for adults and Matt for, for kids. Yeah, I think one of the most common, um, now I think it will be simplified for adults since mm -hmm. there is only the bivalent option. Um, I think prior patients were getting monovalent boosters when we had, or monovalent vaccines when we had the bivalent booster available. Mm -hmm. um, so really just making sure for adults, I, one bivalent dose is all they're gonna need. Mm -hmm. um, so the simplification of that regimen is pretty pretty easy. It's a little more complicated for children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, in, in children, I, I think it's, uh, um uh, related to, to that relative complexity, again, it's, it's simplified over time, uh, but anytime there's, there's a, a change in the recommendations, uh, it, it, it can uh, prompt reevaluation within a clinic of, of ensuring that uh, 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 all the right products and the time periods are, are now being adhered to. So I, I, the, really the most common uh, uh, vaccine administration errors in, in pediatrics are based on vials chosen, so making sure that you're giving the right dose making sure you're giving the right product if, if due for Moderna versus Pfizer, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, and then the time intervals in between. Uh, and that's where leveraging uh, 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 EMR systems uh, can help because it can build in these uh, guardrails to ensure mm -hmm. uh, uh, that providers are administering the correct dose at the correct interval with the correct product. Okay, and you know, speaking of um, these correct products, um, if you do have a vaccine error and you give the incorrect product, uh, what, do, what do we need to, as you know, clinicians, need to be on the lookout for? What do we need to tell patients and what kind of side effects should we expect? It, it, it would depend largely on uh, the, the dose given, whether or not it was too much versus too little and, mm -hmm. and the time period in terms of how, how uh, uh, much time separated the doses. Uh, CDC has a, a very good table of uh, next steps that clinicians can take. I believe it's Appendix D, if I remember correctly. Okay. Uh, on their interim recommendations uh, that provides a, a uh, uh, really a laundry list of kind of if-then scenarios. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so that's probably the first place to go to. In, in general, uh, if a, a dose is given uh, that's too large, for instance, it's not recommended to repeat any dose. Uh, and, and then it would just be uh, uh, counseling the ensure the uh, families are uh, on the lookout for any vaccine-derived uh, side effect, as you would for any child that you vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about an underdosing? How would you handle a situation where, um, let's say, the patient received either dose one or two of Moderna was underdosed for a child? Uh, for, for, for underdosing, if um, uh, 
uh, for instance, if half the dose spills out for uh, within the vial or within the uh, uh, syringe and you catch that at the time of the visit, uh, you, you can, uh, based on CDC recommendations, give that additional half dose at, at that same clinic visit. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if this is, uh, and that, that would be just a individual uh, uh, circumstance based on, on that administration. Uh, if a child received, and this is found out retrospectively, the, the incorrect dose, and it, it turns out to be the lower dose than what was recommended, mm -hmm. uh, then the recommendations uh, would be to re repeat the dose based on the, the uh, uh, correct dosage. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be given immediately, although uh, depending again on, on the child's risk or the young adult's risk of myocarditis mm -hmm. or, or myopericarditis, you, you might want to extend that interval. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if questions, you can always reach out to CDC because there, there are lots of different permutations of, of what could go wrong uh, based on the relative complexity of the vaccine schedule. Uh, probably first place to start is Appendix D uh, on, on the CDC website. Perfect. Are there, you know, you mentioned EMR is a great tool to kind of prevent errors. Any other tools that you guys have to help prevent errors since they, are, they do seem to be so common, unfortunately? I would say just making sure the vaccinators are up to date with the current recommendations. Sometimes EMRs um, are built to catch everything, but ensuring that the vaccinator also double checks everything prior to administration, making sure it's the right dose, the right medication for the right patient, mm -hmm. um, and just making sure that every person who's involved in the process is properly trained. Mm -hmm. Perfect. I, I would uh, 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 echo that. It, mm -hmm. it, probably education, education, education. So in uh, having uh, at workstations, uh, little placards or printouts mm -hmm. of this age equals this dose. From an operational standpoint, minimizing the complexity of your vaccine doses. So on, on the tables I presented, mm -hmm. there's a lot of if-then scenarios is just deciding in our clinic, th these are the, uh, the vials we're gonna administer uh, just to remove any uh, p potential redundancy and minimize risk of errors. Perfect. Well, that is super helpful. Thank you guys so much. Um, we're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter. Emily? Bivalent boosters do show great efficacy at preventing hospitalization, severe disease, and death. So I would recommend for any patient who has not received a bivalent booster to get vaccinated, and then especially those over 65 or immunocompromised. And Matt? And I'll echo that for young children as well. So even though, and thankfully, the outcomes of COVID-19 are generally more mild in children, they're certainly not always mild. So the best way to prevent hospitalization, MISC, and other severe outcomes due to COVID-19 is to ensure that children remain up to date on their vaccines. Thanks for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging on to ccme.osu.edu and taking our post-test. Join us again next week with my guests, Dr. Aaron Clark and Dr. Sandeep Palakodetti to learn about value-based care. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.